from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform, the first of 2024, so a Happy New Year to our listeners. I'm Ian Bond, the CER's Deputy Director. So on January the 13th, the first of a lot of important elections this year took place, but they happened in a place that only a dozen other states recognize as a country, namely Taiwan. And Lai Ching-te, also known as William Lai, who's been Taiwan's vice president since 2020, is now the president-elect. And for the third election in succession, the Democratic Progressive Party has held on to the presidency. So far, so dull. But in the run-up to the election, tens of thousands of words were written by hundreds of commentators around the world about these elections. So what we want to do in this podcast is to explain the background to the election and talk about the implications of the results, including for Europe. And I have three great guests to help me explore these issues. Philippe Lecor is a senior fellow at the Asia Society's Centre for China Analysis and a professor at the ESSEC Business School in Paris. And he's had a long career looking at Chinese issues, including Taiwan. Indeed, he started his career in Taiwan as a foreign correspondent. Philippe is the author of several books on China, including China's Offensive in Europe, which was published by the Brookings Institution. And he's recently published a paper on Europe-Taiwan relations for the Asia Society entitled the rebirth of Taiwan-Europe relations, explaining Europe's new balance between Beijing and Taipei. Helena Legarda is a lead analyst at the Mercator Institute for China Studies, MERICS, in Berlin. Her research focuses on China's defense and foreign policies, including their domestic sources and drivers, and their geopolitical impact. Prior to joining MERICS, she gained professional experience at the delegation of the European Union to China and at research and advisory firm China Policy in Beijing. Helena holds a Master's in Public Policy degree from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a BA in Chinese Studies from Oxford. She also studied Chinese language at Peking University. And finally, Christina Kessler is the 2023-2024 Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow here at the CER. Prior to joining the CER, Christina worked for NATO's Policy Planning Unit and for the European Green Party. She has an MA from the College of Europe in Bruges and an MSc in Global Governance and Diplomacy from Oxford. Her focus while she's at the CER is on European foreign and security policy, China and the Indo-Pacific region. And she's the author of a recent insight for the CER entitled A Sea of Troubles, Addressing the EU's Incoherence on the Indo-Pacific. So welcome to all three of you. Philippe, let me start by asking you, you know Taiwan well. So what was the context for this election and what were the issues that shaped the election campaign? Thank you, Ian. Very nice to be with you and Belena and Christina. I think you put things very well when you said that this election in particular attracted so much international interest. That makes it quite an exception compared to other previous elections, which I covered as a journalist or as an analyst for that matter. This election was different because the situation in the Taiwan Strait has changed a great deal under President Xi Jinping. 
with military exercises taking place around the island of Taiwan in the summer of 2022 and since. That's one big difference. And secondly, obviously, the Taiwan democracy somewhat proven that it can shine all the way to Europe and to the United States. And the three candidates that were running against each other actually were representing different grassroots people, I suppose. But in the end, they showed to the world that Taiwan democracy is vibrant and was able to translate into a very balanced political landscape with the Democratic Progressive Party winning a third term in a row with William Lai as president. And the KMT, the Nationalist Party, which was in power for many, many years under Chiang Kai-shek, and for eight years recently before the incumbent president Tsai Ing-wen was elected and lost to Tsai Ing-wen in 2016. And thirdly, a third party called the TPP, led by someone called Ko Wenzheng, who was somewhat a, a different type of candidate looking at at the domestic situation and the Taiwanese society, which has been, of course, evolving a great deal over the past few years, and perhaps getting away a little bit from the two-straight relationship, even though the shadow of China, of course, was there during the whole campaign, and of course, will be there for the next few years under the new president, William Lai. If I can just ask you a very quick sort of supplementary on that. I mean, between the three parties, were there significant differences on domestic policy or clearly there's a difference between the KMT's approach to relations with China and the DPP's approach to relations with China? But were there big differences also in their approach to you know economic policy or the other things that usually get people to vote in a different way in an election? So, you know, the interesting story is that Mr. Ho, the KMT candidate, who is a former police chief and Taipei mayor, didn't perform very well on the domestic front, especially the young people who voted for the third candidate, Mr. Ko. And I think William Lai didn't really benefit from the splits between the two. And at one point, they were going to run together as a ticket, but they failed to agree. That's because basically both of them wanted to be president and they failed that. But one thing I should add, and that's sort of leading to your question on the domestic situation, is that not only the Taiwanese were voting for the presidential election, but also for the legislative run, which is Taiwan's parliament, 113 members of parliament. And in fact, the DPP kind of lost that election because they have one seat less than the KMT. And the TPP, the third party with eight seats, will be able to build a coalition or help give trouble to Mr. Lai's party in parliament. Helena, as Philippe has said, this had a lot of interest abroad, but how has the result been received abroad? And in particular... I wonder whether you can say something about China's position, both in the run-up to the election and since the results have become known. And also, what should we make of the US response? I mean, I was quite struck by Joe Biden going on record to say the US does not support Taiwanese independence. And I wondered, do you have a sense of why he might have felt that he had to say something so explicit about that? Thank you, Ian. I mean, as you just outlined, I think we've seen very different responses to the results of these presidential elections in Taiwan. Maybe to start off with China, with Beijing's position. Prior to the election throughout the campaign, I think it's fair to say that Beijing had a very clear preference in terms of results and in terms of candidates. And the bottom line for Beijing is they did not want to see the DPP win. 
they did not want Lai Qingde to become president of Taiwan. And this is because for a very long time, for years now, effectively since Taiwan became president, at least, Beijing has been criticizing the DPP and Taiwan, and more recently Lai Qingde himself, for their quote-unquote separatism. So Beijing considers the DPP to be a separatist force in Taiwan that support Taiwanese independence. Throughout the campaign, state media and even official sources not only attacked Mr. Lai for being a separatist, but they called him provocative, they called him aggressive, and they even labeled his ticket with former representative to the United States, Bi Kim Xiao, who is now vice president-elect, quote-unquote, the most dangerous combination. So there were, again, a very clear preference from Beijing's side, and quite a few threats being made by Chinese state media with regards to the likely increase of tensions in the Taiwan Strait if the DPP won the election. So what Beijing has now is what they consider to be the worst case scenario. So we are expecting, I think, a fairly angry reaction from Beijing in the months to come. For now, it has to be said that the initial response from China to the election results has been relatively muted. We've had short statements by the Taiwan Affairs Office of the State Council and by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including by the minister himself, Wang Yi, effectively emphasizing China's position that this is all China's internal affair and that the results of the elections will not change its overall approach and strategy and wish to achieve national reunification. And what's interesting is that they have latched onto the fact that the DPP has lost a number of seats in parliament and they've lost share of the vote to effectively push the claim that the DPP does not, in fact, represent the majority of the Taiwanese population. So we're seeing already a bit of an attempt to delegitimize the DPP. So that's what we're getting in terms of China's response for now. But given the fact that, again, a DPP victory was seen as the worst case scenario for Beijing, I think we can expect more from China. We can expect Beijing to up the pressure on Taiwan. Military exercises near Taiwan, I think, are possible even likely over the next few months. But I think we're also much more likely to see a continuation or even an intensification of gray zone activities and coercive trade measures, which we've already seen in the run-up to the election, such as, for example, the suspension of certain parts of the bilateral economic cooperation framework agreement, effectively imposing tariffs on Taiwanese exports to China. So we're probably going to see more of that. As to the U.S., as you said, a very different response, right? So first of all, we had Secretary of State Blinken congratulating Lai on his victory. And there was also a delegation of former senior officials that traveled to Taiwan to meet not just with Lai Qingde and the DPP, but also with the KMT and other kind of opposition figures. So clearly the U.S. coming out sort of in support of the Taiwanese electoral process and, and congratulating Lai Xingde, but making very clear that they will continue to engage also with the opposition parties. President Biden's comments, I think, may come across as surprising, but I don't think they should be. That the United States does not support Taiwanese independence, I think, has been a standard line coming out of, of Washington already for quite a long time. And I read this as a signal to the president-elect 
as listeners may be aware, in the past, Lai Tingde has made some comments regarding his support for Taiwanese independence and calling himself a practical worker for Taiwanese independence. And I think there was still some concern in Washington and elsewhere overseas that if he won the election, he may continue down that path. I find that extremely unlikely. I think he has moderated his approach and his tone very substantially while he's been Taiwan's vice president. But I think that concern was to a certain extent still there potentially, and this might have been a sign of these concerns. And that's why probably President Biden felt the need to mention it. So, Christina, what about European responses? Obviously, in some ways, they matter less in the region. But what have the Europeans been saying? What have the European External Action Service said and the other major EU members? So, in general, the EU has been really, really careful when it comes to this. When you look at the different statements, you can really see what kind of diplomatic balancing act the EU is trying to achieve here. The devil is really in the details. So the statement of the European External Action Service that you mentioned welcomes the elections and congratulates all the voters. But it also does not mention the winner of the presidential election, Lai. France and Germany came out with statements that were very similar to one another. They both congratulated the voters, the candidates and those elected. But their statements also did not mention Lai by name. Lithuania is a little bit of an exception when it comes to this general trend. On X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, Lithuania's foreign minister congratulated Lai on his election as president. But still, in general, the EU and most European countries have avoided mentioning Lai's name and did not refer to the elections as presidential elections, presumably in order not to upset Beijing. It's interesting. I mean, to congratulate the voters, but not mention who actually won is a very, very peculiar way of dealing with an election, it seems to me. But anyway, there we are. So that's the immediate responses from the rest of the world. But we also have to think a little bit about the longer term implications. And perhaps I'd like to start with a question to you, Philippe, going back to what you were saying about the parliamentary part of these elections, the elections, the legislative yuan, and the fact that the DPP had lost its majority there. So that leaves the KMT, I think, with a plurality of the votes, but with the TPP, the Taiwan People's Party, holding the balance of power. And I wonder, what does that mean for Lai's ability to govern? Is it going to paralyze? his domestic agenda? And is that going to make it more or less likely that he will raise the sovereignty issue? I mean, sometimes if you can't get what you want on the domestic front, if you're a political leader, the temptation is to find something that you can do externally that the the legislature doesn't have any control over. And I just wondered, might he be tempted to go that way? Or is this actually going to force him to be overall more cautious? Well, obviously, on this matter of too straight relationship, it's really a, a matter of life and death for as far as Taiwan is concerned. We all have noted former President Ma Ying-jeou's comments. The previous president before Mrs. Tsai was a KMT president saying that, you know, we had to discuss with China because China is too big, is too strong and we need to compromise. And I think that probably put away some of the Taiwanese voters who ended up voting for either the DPP, either the TPP, but not for the KMT. Having said that, we are ending up with a a very split parliament 
with three parties, two of them with 51 and 52 seats, and one of them with eight seats, which can really help build a majority for or against Mr. Lai's DPP. I think it's going to be very interesting. As you may know, I mean, the current Taiwan constitution is partly based on the French constitution with a strong president and a strong parliament. And without the parliament, he will not be able to pass certain bills. And the role of the speaker will be very interesting. We'll see there are a few names going around about who is going to be the speaker of that legislative realm. But as far as your question, your bigger question about whether he was going to engage more into foreign policy, well, China has already given an answer by establishing diplomatic relations with the island of Nauru, which is one state less for Taiwan, for the Republic of China on Taiwan. And of course, that's a warning. China's response to these elections may have been slightly subdued compared to previous occasions. But this particular act of cutting off Nauru from Taiwan is a sign that China may not be so active in the next few months on the military front. At least that's the impression of a few analysts I've spoken to in Taiwan and other places, especially in the run-up to the U.S. elections, which is really a big issue looming. But as far as the diplomatic coercion is concerned, my impression is that Beijing will continue to put a lot of pressure on Taiwan, and especially on this DPP administration with Mr. Lai and Ms. Xiao, the vice president-elect, who is considered as a close friend to the United States and who was until recently the unofficial ambassador to Washington. That's interesting. I mean, I wonder whether if you're President Lai and you know that the Chinese are trying to pick off your remaining diplomatic allies, is your first move to get on a plane and start shoring up support there? Or do you actually have to concentrate on the domestic agenda first? Yeah, I think obviously, I mean, I was really interested in hearing Taiwanese voters, especially the young generation, who is not so interested in fighting a war with anyone, to be honest. I mean, people speak of the Taiwanese army as a bit of a small military that really is more symbolic than anything else, despite help from the US and Japan, and you know, especially in case of conflict. So I think domestic issues, they do matter a lot. The environment, jobs, social issues you know, how to exist really as an island recognized by only 12 tiny nations around the world. What about Taiwan's identity? You know, what about Taiwan's culture? These are big issues for people who have been technically isolated from China for the past 70 plus years that have created a society of their own, but that have so many links with China, including language, including culture, including businesses. And even though they've been driven away by China and by some of the Taiwanese entrepreneurs who feel scared of being in China, there are still many, many trade ties between the two sides. So, Helena, if I can ask you a question based on your expertise on Chinese foreign policy, Xi Jinping is sitting in Beijing thinking about these things. What is he going to make of these elections? Is he going to think our approach is working? Because in 2020, Tsai Ing-wen won 57% of the vote. This time, Lai Ching-de only won 40% of the vote? Or will he think the DPP has won three elections in a row? We need to do something that stops them winning again in 2028. How worried should the rest of us be that Xi Jinping will become impatient with the lack of progress towards unification with Taiwan? And to the extent that we can 
guess at what some of the other players in this are thinking. Do we know what the Americans or the Japanese think they can or should be doing to ensure that things don't get worse for Taiwan? That's a great question, Ian. And I think that the short answer to do we know what Xi Jinping is thinking is unfortunately no. We do not. So all we can do is try to infer from signals coming out of Beijing. And I think there's been a couple of developments over the last two, three days that are showing or suggesting that Beijing is not at the moment considering a change in approach. So we are seeing, and Philippe mentioned the case of Nauru, switching recognition from Taiwan to the PRC. I mean, I think it's obvious that this is an agreement that was finalized before the election. And they were holding off on it for maximum effect if the elections did not go Beijing's way. So again, we have a continuation of Beijing's strategy of pressuring Taiwan and trying to narrow down its international space. And similarly, just a few hours ago, the Chinese foreign ministry summoned the Filipino ambassador to complain and ask for an explanation over the Philippines president, Bongbong Marcos's message congratulating lighting the on his victory and mentioning that he would like to strengthen relations with Taiwan and find a way to cooperate further. So again, pointing towards continuation, mostly. And a third signal, and this is maybe a bit more ideological or theoretical, but these things are rarely accidents. Just over the last few hours, over the last 24 hours, the CCP released a speech that Xi Jinping gave in 2022, talking about United Front Work Department and the sort of United Front Work internationally. And it's interesting because there's a couple of sections in there about what they would like to do vis-a-vis Taiwan. And fundamentally, the idea is that Beijing would like to isolate the DPP or separatist forces, as they call them, and continue strengthening patriotic forces in Taiwan to try and win hearts and minds of the Taiwanese people in their pursuit of, quote unquote, peaceful reunification. As I said, I don't think the timing of this release or the publication of this speech was accidental. I think it's probably also a signaling mechanism for the Chinese leadership that they are not at the moment considering turning towards the use of force. So what I think we can expect from China's side is, sure, more tensions and more pressure on Taiwan as they try to intimidate the new administration and re-emphasize red lines. So I think that is extremely likely, but I would not expect war or open conflict in the Taiwan Strait, or at least not one that is intentional. China at the moment has plenty of domestic issues to deal with, and the Chinese leadership will also be waiting for the U.S. elections in November of this year to see which way American voters go and what they can expect in terms of potential American reactions. So over, at least throughout this year, I think we're looking at a picture of continuation of current trends and current levels of pressure. So I'm not talking about the situation and the tensions coming down. I don't think they will, but I don't see any intention in Beijing to change approach just yet. But maybe a final point on this, Ian, because I think you mentioned something quite important regarding the potential for impatience in Xi Jinping's mind or among the Chinese leadership over the lack of progress towards peaceful reunification. And I think that is a very real concern. 
Beijing has been pushing for peaceful reunification for decades now, but little progress or no progress has been made. If anything, Taiwanese public opinion and Taiwanese identity is moving in the opposite direction. Fewer and fewer Taiwanese people identify as Chinese. Fewer and fewer Taiwanese people support unification with the PRC of any form. So at a certain point, I think these trends are likely to create some impatience in Beijing and there's probably already some of that going on, but I don't think we've reached the tipping point at the moment. Finally, Christina, let me come back to you and ask you about the implications for Europe. Neville Chamberlain, who was Britain's prime minister at the start of the Second World War, infamously described the crisis leading up to Hitler's occupation of Czechoslovakia as a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. And I'm guessing that you think it would be a mistake for Europe to view the cross-straits relationship between China and Taiwan in the same light. But, you know, there are a lot of other things on Europe's foreign policy agenda at the moment. There's a full-scale war in Ukraine. There's the threat of regional conflict in the Middle East. Should Europe be paying more attention to what's happening in Taiwan and in the Taiwan Strait? And what, if anything, can it actually do about the situation surrounding Taiwan? Thank you, Ian. Yeah, I indeed think that it would be a mistake for Europe to look at the situation in Taiwan and in general, the situation in the, in the Pacific and only view this as a quarrel in a faraway country. Because yes, Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region might seem far away to Europe, but European and Indo-Pacific security are actually deeply intertwined with each other. A military escalation in the Indo-Pacific or even already a blockade of Taiwan would have severe implications for Europe. And I'm not sure to what extent everyone in Europe has realized this at this point. First of all, there are, of course, economic interests at stake. The countries in the Indo-Pacific region are important trading partners for the European Union. Additionally, almost 90% of the EU's external trade is transported by ship. So the EU is really dependent on ships being able to freely pass through the waterways of the region. Regarding Taiwan specifically, it's almost impossible to overstate the influence of the Taiwanese semiconductor industry on the global economy. But it's also wrong to frame it in a way as if the European interests in the region were only just economic. The EU also has a deep interest in a certain type of international system. The EU is not built to function effectively in a world of might makes right. It is fundamental for Europe that certain international norms are upheld, and developments in the region could undermine such norms, which would then, in turn, deeply affect the European Union. But that's still not it. A conflict in the region also would affect European security. So European security, as it is structured today, is in large parts dependent on the United States and the role of the United States in NATO. But in the case of a military escalation in the Indo-Pacific, the US would likely have to make trade-offs. And the trade-off here would be European security. The US would possibly invest significantly less in European security. So Europeans need to be aware that in the case of a military escalation, not only would the focus of the US shift away from it, but also it should be expected that allies and partners of the EU in the Indo-Pacific would ask for support. This goes for the US, but also for others. Japan, for example, has been very supportive of Ukraine in the last few months. But in the case of a security crisis in the Indo-Pacific, it would only make sense for Japan to expect support in return from the Europeans, for example, in the form of implementing sanctions against China. So Europe really needs to realize that it could not just easily ignore an escalation in the Indo-Pacific and be fine with it. So then, of course, the question is, what should Europe do today to prepare for this? 
first of all, Europe needs to become much more aware of how important peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait and the Indo-Pacific is to its own security. Some European countries have started to realize this, but far from everyone. And then Europeans need to ask themselves in which ways they could contribute to preserving stability in the region. What role do they actually want to take up there? Currently, there's a lot of disunity among different EU member states on what the best way forward is in the Indo-Pacific. And that makes sense because they look at the region through very, very different lenses. And these discussions are difficult, but they need to be had. Developments around Taiwan could have enormous consequences for Europe. And Europe should not just ignore this and hope for the best. It should do its part in preserving peace in the region. A very good note on which to end. I must say, when you were talking about the possibility that the United States might turn away from Europe to focus on the problems of the Indo-Pacific, it did put me in mind of the fact that this is very clearly the kind of advice that Donald Trump is getting, that there are people around him who say, you know, leave the Europeans to sort out their own problems. The US should be focusing on China and China more or less exclusively as a security issue. So I think this is a real issue that Europeans will have to grapple with. I think that's all we've got time for today. I'm very grateful to my guests, Philippe Lecourt, Helena Lagarde and Christina Kessler. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast from the Centre for European Reform. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcast platform and please leave us a good review. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.